Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. On this episode, we welcome animation writer, producer extraordinaire, Josh Weinstein. Hello again, one and all. This is Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm a little, uh, I'm a little stuffy. Other than that, okay, I guess. I suppose I could, with complete impartiality and without any direct association, mention that the Encounters Film Festival that takes place in this very town of Bristol, about a month from now, late September, they have announced their short film programs. And what a lineup it is! <laughs> Actually, a very, uh, a very strong lineup. I sort of a mix of. Um, Films that I'm th- I think will be quite familiar, having done the rounds over the last, you know, nearly a year or so, and then some brand new stuff. The f- festival program is at encounters-festival.org.uk, and um, book your tickets now. I'll, uh, I'll be <laughs> around at least for a couple of the days. Mm, that's the 25th to the 30th. Indeed. I'm not sure to what degree I'll be doing the squiggly thing, because... It's sort of a bit different this time, sort of being involved as a filmmaker, but also I might be working during the week anyway, so I might only be around in the evenings. You could interview yourself, that'd be good. Yeah. I don't know why I haven't done that before, (laughs) now that you mention it. Oh, I should get Laura to interview me. Because I interviewed Laura last year for the, when her film was in Encounters. Yeah. So she can reciprocate this year. There you go. Maybe, if she's around, if she comes. (laughs) Have you noticed in your Twitter feed a little bit more of this kind of your adventures in submitting your films, uh, which comes <laughs> around every other year, which I've, I always find fascinating. You seem to enter your film in, well, given that the, these are the only festivals worth talking about, I'm sure you enter it to lots of nice festivals that are not worth mentioning. But the ones that really rattle your cage, I've got some pretty <laughs> inexcusable dealings going yeah. on. There's some dodgy stuff <laughs> happening out there and i i wonder what role these online submission platforms have to play in it yeah because i think it makes it easier for for events or things that kind of masquerade as legitimate arts events to a you know get people to send their work but also in a lot of cases to get people to pay the money without questioning a lot of film distribution that will go through a sales agent will be doing a bit of a blanket approach. I mean, I had a, a, a chat with a sales agent who was potentially interested in taking on the continued distribution of a film I was distributing, uh, not one I had directed, but one that had been doing rather well. And, you know, they were kind of going through, and it really, all they suggested was just stuff that uh, I, I had done already. But they were charging a kind of inordinate amount. I think they were kind of hoping for someone who was a bit more of a babe in the woods Mm. as far as, like, you know, what actual labor goes into film submission. You know, they had a per-submission fee and that kind of thing, but they offered packages for, pay us, you know, this many hundred euros a month. We'll submit it to 30 festivals. 30 whole festivals in a month? What? (laughs) That's like one a day. What kind of magical beings are you? You can do 30 festivals in five minutes yeah. now. You just add to carts. Whether or not they're any good. Uh, and I try not to do a complete blanket approach to just anything. Mm. 
but you know sometimes when they are free you're just like ah why not and if it turns out to be a festival that has a bad reputation you don't really have to emblazon your video thumbnail or your cv with that mm-hmm. you know there was a, an interesting article on short of the week recently that was kind of making a point about the overvaluing of a massive festival run and I, I agree with that in part. They, the one point they make is they, they show as an example a Vimeo thumbnail that is covered in laurels from film festivals. Not awards, but, you know, officially selected laurels. Yeah. And I have put festival logos on my Vimeo thumbnails in the past. Uh, but their point was, like, you know, when you do that kind of thing and they're just like this indiscriminate like list of festivals that have no particular industry standing or whatever then do people like short of the week that sends a clear message that you are definitely going for quantity over quality yeah i understand that point i think from the filmmaker's perspective as you know a a filmmaker and to a lesser extent a curator from the filmmaker's perspective some of these people are out to make money from their films or out to improve their job prospects but a lot of us, and I, I count myself in this group, just want people to see the film. Mm-hmm. And it's nice, the idea that it's being seen in a unique space or a public event space or a cinema is quite appealing. Because it is, it is a different, sometimes it is a different kind of vibe you get from just watching it on Vimeo. Yeah. Uh, nothing wrong with Vimeo, but, you know, my last film, Clean and Throw, it only uh, achieved its detractors when it became an online film when it was a festival film i assumed it would have detractors but generally people were pretty much all positive because they were all festival people and they actually regarded it as something that kind of broke up uh, in some cases an otherwise sort of slow or uh, somber screening program uh, whereas if you're watching it on vimeo you know, it's a bit more demanding or perceived as being a bit more demanding because you have to kind of sit still for a couple of minutes for it to have any kind of payoff. Yeah. And that's not what people want to do when they're watching videos online. So it was only at that point that there was any kind of criticism leveled against it. And that's fine too. I mean, criticism is great. But it was, an, it was a good insight into that different attitude people come into a festival screening or any kind of public screening with. It's atmosphere, isn't it? That's where it is. It's that that uning atmosphere. The same film can play in different places and get different. You can get a different experience out of it. You know, we'll see a film play at um, play at Annecy, play at Encounters, play at Manchester, play anywhere, and then it has a completely different feeling in in the room. You know, the yeah. laugh, the laughter happens in different places, and that's always quite nice to to hear. The, you know how how a, how a different audience takes a film differently. I was endlessly fascinated by that kind of thing, and I think it's a lot to do with a the audience, and b as you pointed out there alluded to there the context as to the program. So um, a few years ago, best classic examples, and we talked about this on the podcast years ago. That I don't expect anyone to remember, but uh, Scoogin on a Greg came right in the middle of that rather. Uh, soul sapping <laughs> Annecy selection um, and then Scroogan on a Greg came right in the middle and it was just it was the highlight of that program simply because it's a great film don't get me wrong yeah. it came right in the middle of that program 
and it was so welcome. It was like a cool drink of water. It's like it was, a splash in the face. It was amazing. And I remember, I remember being kind of affected by that, and and that left an impression on me. Mm. So it's it's nice when you hear that, you know, you've done something that's had kind of a similar effect. It's not the film that wins the Grand Prix. No, you know, but that's okay. That's you know, some people are, that's entirely what they're about. You know, I've I've won a couple of things over the years. It doesn't generally affect too much. It's nice if it's money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry to, to you know not be super artistically uh, integrity laden there, but otherwise it usually boils down to like a certificate or a little statuette or something. And you know it can look good in a CV, and then one day you're applying for a, a job, and the person who's hiring you has never won an award at a festival, and they've got a chip on their shoulder about it, so you don't get the job because of that. Mm. Um, that one got back to me. <laughs> oh, really? A couple of months after the other one guy I pissed off right out of the gate, like out of like the first few years of graduating and having films and festivals. And I didn't meet him until like a long, long time later. But I, I yeah, word had gotten to me that he, he really didn't like the cut of this Ben Mitchell's jib. <laughs> he mentioned his film won an award in his CV. What a tosser. <laughs> But did you have did you have laurels all over your CV? And then did you go into the interview with a T-shirt filled with laurels with all the festivals that you've been in? Put your feet on the desk, and uh, and, and at the bottom of your soles of your shoes were more laurels. <laughs> you just said, "When can I start?" <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what's your point? No, well, <laughs> I just wanted to know what page you were on. Going back to what you were saying about my my recent adventures, I can read you an email I got shortly after applying to a festival that I probably wouldn't have applied to, but I have a little column uh, in my sort of submission spreadsheet of festivals that have shown my work in the past. Hmm. And so this might sound arrogant, but in part, it's like, why not give them the business, like give them a kind of right of first refusal? Because... You know, the fact that they showed stuff of mine, they took a punt on it, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Not that they're, they're desperate for my films, but, you know, they're kind of on my mind in that sense. So, otherwise, I probably wouldn't have submitted to this festival this year. But, uh, anyway, this is an email I got after I submitted to them. Thank you for your interest in and submission to our festival. Uh, I won't say the name of the festival, but, anyway. In this regard, we would like to inform you that... As mentioned on our website, submissions are to be with fees. Uh, Unfortunately, due to technical issues, this fact was omitted and now is included on the platforms via which you've submitted your films. So I submitted a film that was to a festival that listed as not having a fee. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've accepted my submission pending me paying a fee, but the fee isn't specified on the platform I submitted it to. So the email goes on. So you, you went through the contract that, that said, so if it was via their website, via Without a Box, or via uh, whatever, it, you tick the box and it said no fee, no fee. There was no mention of fee right the way through. So you submitted and, as far as you know, gratis. It basically, yeah. That was the understanding at the time. So there, there, there email continues. Taking into account all the circumstances occurred, we would like to ask you to make a payment slash donation of minimum, and then they specify a number, per film by 30th of July for it to be considered 
within the framework of the festival. And then there's an option like, if you wish to pay the minimal suggested uh, donation, then you have to enter it as a custom donation because that when you go there, they ask for more. First of all, the payment slash donation, that's an odd <laughs> pairing of words. Which is it? <laughs> yeah. And basically what they're saying is, regardless of the fact it was their error, they're not going to consider the film for their festival unless I pay them. Which, to, it's a bit of a f***ing shakedown. They got you by the balls there, mate. So after this payment deadline has passed, this was a week ago, I got an email. Dear film submitter, thank you for your motivation to participate in our festival. This letter is to confirm we did receive your submission. Uh, however, for your film to be considered later by our pre-selection committee, we strongly encourage you to make the payments before the deadline of the 22nd of August. So the deadline's moved. It's the strongly encourage I like. That's, that's got a bit of a Tony Soprano vibe about it, you know. Like, I, I strongly encourage you to answer Uncle June's calls. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the next one. What's the next one say? <laughs> <laughs> Dear motherfucker. <laughs> why you gotta be this way? I know where you live. The other one, and... This, I, I actually sort of posted the email or excerpts from the email to the, the Twitter. This is another recent one. So far, the communication, because I've, I've asked for sort of clarity on some of the areas and they, they haven't replied. But this is a, a baffling one. This is a festival fairly close to home. I would have liked to go. Um, as it turns out, it uh, is taking place on the weekend of my first wedding anniversary. Uh, so I otherwise would have gone, but we're going to be in Bath. So that wasn't the date originally listed when I submitted to this festival. As the event is coming closer, uh, we'd like to inform you that because we've had over 3,500 submissions, we've prioritized the event date and venue for those who've successfully been chosen, which are over 80 nominees from 21 categories. Uh, therefore, we can only show the film screening of those who will be attending the event. <laughs> now that is a, a, a first we're a film festival if you don't come we don't show your film wow have you ever heard of that no that's that is really bizarre uh then it gets even how, how do they police that just let's just let's just unpack that how do they police that is there somebody deleting films i'm sorry look it says it's an hour and a half in the program but you know only three of you have turned up so it's a 20 minute program <laughs> How are they going to do that? Maybe on some level it's to guarantee a certain degree of attendance. Mm. But, uh, and also, you know, it's um, later on in the email, they're like, oh, and this is how much the tickets cost if you are going to come. And you have to let them know how many people you would bring if you were going to go. This is the part that absolutely didn't make any sense whatsoever. The cinema has given us a specific period which we can show the films. Therefore, to display these... We will need you to cut your film down to the most favoured slash important part between five and eight minutes that you would like us to screen. This ensures that more films can be screened at the event. <laughs> if you're showing five to eight minute clips of the films, you're not showing any films at the event. <laughs> you're showing a bunch of clips from films. <laughs> Now, in my case, it wouldn't apply. My film is just over five minutes long. Mm. 
So I wouldn't need to cut it down. Now, what I think may have happened after this is a bunch of filmmakers replied to this email going, what the f*** are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> you, know, you know when you get like an explanation follow-up email that makes less sense than the original thing? Yeah. I work in a university then, of course. <laughs> this came later in the day. Dear filmmaker, our previously sent email stated, we required your projects to be cut into five to eight minutes. However, this was directed to our sponsors who wanted to include additional projects. We have had several emails by filmmakers with production companies wanting to sponsor our event. We are collaborating with production companies, uh, such, and then they list a production company, and several others. But they weren't. You know, that wasn't what the original email mentioned at all. They were talking to the people who were officially, you know, quote-unquote, officially selected for this festival. Mm. There was nothing about, like, you know... Dear sponsor, or you know, <laughs> and also it's meant to be a festival of independent film. I don't think that corporate sponsorship is meant to fall into that remit. And how would they have films that are over a certain amount of time? Yeah, like, and also if you're if you're saying that the people who are actually the filmmakers that have been selected can't show their films if they're not going to show up to free up time in the schedule. And you're letting, you know, these corporate sponsors show their work. That's a bit f***ed. <laughs> like, it's basically saying we're prioritizing our sponsors. That's not yeah. really how sponsorship is meant to work. Um, I think what this may just be, and this sort of brings me back to my original point. I think that things like Film Freeway, for example, happen to be the, the platform in this case. Uh, Film Freeway is one of the more convenient ones because it is very... There's no financial kind of upfront with Film Freeway. Right. You can join and register and submit to all the free festivals you want, and you pay a fee for the festivals that have fees. But Film Freeway don't take their cut out of your end. They presumably take it either out of the festivals who pay some kind of listing fee. I don't know what their setup is, but maybe there are like more um, advanced plans for bigger film distributors, but for indies like me, it's a pretty good system as far as you know, not having to worry about expenditures beyond the submission fees. Mm -hmm. Pretty much every other online platform will charge something. Actually, I don't think Without a Box does, but they tend to, they very rarely list festivals that don't have significant fees. Yeah. So if you're going to go exclusively through without a box, you're going to need some kind of distribution budget, and you'll probably benefit from doing your research about exactly what sort of areas of the festival circuit you want to target. Film Freeway, I think, is a bit more of a playground for small operations that are starting up these sort of small-scale events. And I don't have a problem with that in theory. I think some of them are really quite charming. Uh, and I have no, like one of the small festivals, I think I probably mentioned, screened their films in a barn in um, mm. Minnesota. And, you know, filmmakers are given like, you know, baskets of free produce to go home with. Fantastic. That's, that's fun. You know, that's a nice sort of, it has charm. The reviews are great. But if it's just like, oh yeah, we're going to show it in a reasonably local independent cinema venue who's given us really limited time so we have to make enormous concessions to the overall festival experience and how we value your work as a filmmaker that i'm less thrilled about yes it's a fascinating youtube documentary um 
I mean, it's just it's it's not really a documentary. It's kind of like a uh, a travelogue that this uh, middle-aged couple from the states made uh, when their film got into a festival in Swansea. Uh, if you type in, I think it was Swansea Bay Film Festival, and this YouTube video should come up. And uh, they're live-action filmmakers. It's, it, it's, it can't be sort of described, like, what's going on at this film festival. You kind of have to watch this to, to believe it. It's about a quarter of an hour long. It's worth your time. Is Swansea Bay Film Festival the worst festival ever? Yeah. Is that the it? the one. 2011. Yeah. Straight up to the, with the current YouTube clips. <laughs> Here on Squiggly. Have you seen uh, Charlie Bit My Finger, Ben? I remember this being like kind of an important cautionary tale uh, in the earlier days of my film submissions. Mm. Because it, it was, a, you know, it hadn't really occurred to me that there were events there that kind of preyed on people a bit. I'm sure there's stuff like this that maybe still goes on. I hope that the various platforms that are out there are better at policing them or have kind of checks in place for that. Mm. One thing that I remember... It would entice filmmakers into paying a screening fee, which is really not the way around it should be. Like, if you if your film gets screened, they should pay you or not. But, the, you know, the idea that you pay a film festival to screen your work is ridiculous. Yeah. And then also, with the guarantee that your film will be screened at a bunch of associated festivals, if you pay a screening fee to each of those, it'll automatically go through because they're like in partnership with one another and an official selection as one counts as an official selection at these various other festivals, as long as you pay them. Hmm. And that, that was sort of fascinating to me. Like, okay, well, that, I could see people who maybe don't really know how the cogs of the industry really kind of turn could get swindled by that. Yeah. And uh, the organizer of this festival is, is this majestic villain that documentary sometimes serve up like really good documentaries. You will find these stranger than fiction douchebags <laughs> like King of, of Kong has Billy Mitchell. The paradise lost trilogy had that ridiculous father of one of the victims who, you know, you're sure is, is probably the real killer. And then at the end, it kind of turns out that he's just a bit of a dickhead, <laughs> but you know, that's a, for such an amateur, I mean, it was a pretty amateur thing. This doc, it wasn't made as a documentary. They were just filming this crazy stuff as it was happening. Yeah. But as, it was a, a compelling piece that these two filmmakers made probably more compelling than the actual film that got selected. Yeah. So yeah, it was, that's a sort of interesting, uh, little throwback to um, what film festivals can be and uh, how we should be on alert sometimes. Mm. But yeah, don't, you don't pay them to screen your films. That's ridiculous. No, and a lot of people do that and they take it personally as well. I mean, I've noticed, um, you know, uh, particularly students submitting the work and not getting in and then saying, well, well there's X amount of money I'm never going to see again. Or, you know, and they take it personally. And, and the idea that... that because it's quite a personal thing. You're handing in your work for some form of validation and you can load that submission with all your hopes and dreams. And when somebody turns you down, then that's bound to annoy you. It's bound to really take it personally. You know, that's, that's completely acceptable. But the idea that that money is, uh, and a lot of people take offense to the idea of the money as well, that the money is somehow, they've been scammed. They've been scammed out of their cash, um, and I'm talking about the legitimate film festivals here. You know, who you know, but that money goes towards 
the festival team who are, you know, for the love of film, for the love of animation, for the love of performing arts, they're putting on a festival. And, you know, you can look at it as a that you're kickstarting a festival in, in, in the, you know, loosest possible sense. It's It's quite a good thing that you've done. I think so. It's certainly less of a concern now than it was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I, I remember, like, the first month taking things very personally, and then they kind of did this thing where I'm like, okay, every time someone actually gets in touch with a rejection, send it to two more festivals. Yeah. For a little while and see what happens. And then what happened was it, it started to snowball, and, you know, things worked out pretty well for that first film uh, by, you know, my standards, my expectations of it. You move forward one way or the other. Anyway, so um, after a bit of a quiet start for my new film, it is going to be uh, at Encounters, and another quite big one later on in the year, but I can't really announce that yet. Meanwhile, my previous film is still, like, getting picked for festivals, even though it's been online for ages. Mm. Like, it's almost like it's taunting the new film. Ah, <laughs> 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 uh, people like me more. <laughs> Animation news-wise, I guess the thing that will be... Uh, Screaming at UK listeners from their uh, bus stops <laughs> will be the new series that bears a sort of resemblance to a couple of other series, Disenchantment, mm. from the people who sort of brought you shows like The Simpsons and Futurama. Indeed. The first thing that actually kind of struck me about the art style of this show is that it didn't really remind me of either of those. It reminds me more of Life in Hell. Yeah, there's a there's a... Especially with with the, uh, the Lucy, the um, the demon yeah. character, there's a very kind of graphic quality to that particular uh, character, and even as so far as uh, as Elfo, it does seem it's very uh, Matt Groening going back to his roots. Yeah, that sort of very early days of like Simpsons, where they're kind of. They're finding a middle ground between how he draws and how they can get these characters to look sort of appealing. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a toing and froing the first few seasons of The Simpsons mm-hmm. before they get that right. Some of the peripheral characters in like a season one episode of The Simpsons, are like F- me, like that's <laughs> they're just shitty drawings. <laughs> the background characters in the early Simpsons is always a, an immense source of delight. It's a completely <laughs> different show. Uh, back then to what it I mean season one the <laughs> the wild range of colors applied you know that they, they you know let's make all the characters yellow mm. uh, and occasionally some of them brown and occasionally change the hair color and occasionally make some of them orange it doesn't matter <laughs> you know it's like what, what color paint are we ordering I don't know yellow yeah but there's like four types of yellow does it matter all of the backgrounds <laughs> have that atrocious like sunset pink and orange gradient to them. Do you remember that? Yes. Like, it, and the interiors, weirdly, it's just like, ugh. Like a peach. Yeah. Everything was everything <laughs> was like a kind of pastel, uh, pastel colour, like a 1980s shopping mall colours. <laughs> like, uh, what, what, what colour should we go for? How about vomity peach? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think the, the background's in disenchantment as well. Uh, they they don't really. Uh, in fact, they, they go the complete opposite way. Um, there's a lot, a hell of a lot of detail in this. Mm. And when you imagine a crossover between The Simpsons and Futurama, that worked incredibly well. You know, even a 
crossover between Family Guy and The Simpsons work well enough, you know, the, the, the way that these guys can fit in the same world. But I think the world of disenchantment, there's been an extra bit of care and attention and love put into that the scenario, isn't there? It's, yeah. it's very kind of... Um, and as as the as our guest um, goes into uh, shortly, there's been a bit more care and attention put into that background. I think the familiar thing that everyone will notice from this is the the Matt Groening overbite. That's kind of the only thing that stayed, really. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this is this is one of those this is one of those little fun little things where uh, we get the the previews as well, don't we, Ben? So we got to to watch the first seven episodes to find out more about Disenchantment. Now, what was your uh, your take on it? I really enjoyed it. I thought it had all the elements of uh, a great Netflix show, so you could binge uh, as much as you wanted and watch as much as you wanted. And I found myself genuinely wanting to watch more and more and find out more and more. Um, the gags made me laugh. There's, I, I, you know, uh, for me, I kind of watch stuff and my laugh out loud is, huh. you know, I, I'm not a kind of you know, guffaw rolling on the floor, all that kind of stuff. But I, you know, there's some very audible, you know, me me sort of ex- laughing out loud, genuinely, um, at the comedy. Which, if you look back at the, I remember watching the early Futurama and going, eh, this isn't as good as The Simpsons. And then two seasons in, when it found its feet, it was ten times better than The Simpsons. Well, also the the. The drop-off of The Simpsons kind of happened around the time that Futurama yeah. kicked into gear. Like, it's unfair to compare anything to good Simpsons. <laughs> yeah. But The Simpsons found its stride in season, you know, two, three, four. You mm. know, that that's that kind of... Um, uh, th- right the way through to... And then it sort of petered off around about season 10. We might have discussed The Simpsons before on this podcast, Ben. I'm not entirely sure if we've had any previous of us whinging about the state and, and the decline of The Simpsons. Um, I think that's one of the misconceptions of the Squiggly podcast. It's a bit like the the semen stains and master baits in uh, Captain Pugwash. Yes. Is that we're, most of the time, we do, t- we do wank on about The Simpsons a lot, but 90% of the time it gets cut out. Right. Because I appreciate it's it's more fun to to participate than to listen back <laughs> i think the last episode where we did talk about the simpsons was the first time in quite a long time yeah so uh rather good timing because all these people who've forgotten completely what the simpsons was now remembers it because of our podcast but yeah they, they remember the color at least they've got a f- uh, frame of reference for this new show <laughs> <laughs> i really enjoyed the show i thought it was i thought it was great you know like i said the the story stitched together nicely. I can see there was nice standalone episodes. The characters in of themselves were very well formed straight away. You know, there's a lot done there. Mm-hmm. I mean, early um, episodes of Futurama, we don't quite get what the characters... Uh, the characters aren't entirely fleshed out. And I feel that although there's a lot more that the characters can be doing uh, in, in terms to flesh them out and to give them more backstory, etc., I feel that the, the the characters that we're getting in this first run are incredibly strong and incredibly well put together, um, and the background characters are great as well. You know, I wanted to see I wanted to see more out of some of them. I wanted to see more jokes from um, King Zog's wife, for example. I thought that was a great gag uh, that she's some sort of like reptile lizard creature, and that always made me laugh when when she's mentioned and it's uh, it, it, just the absurd the absurdity of that. Um, and John DiMaggio's King Zog character 
stole the show for me. Just the way that he's this kind of, you know, constant high blood pressure, blustering uh, character. Um, I just, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Something I think he uh, he falls into rather well. Yes, yeah. What do you think, Ben? Uh, I enjoyed it. I think what I was most enamored with, certainly in the first episode, more than the dialogue, was the actual physical comedy through the animation. Mm. Uh, some of the scenarios in particular with the elf character as he kind of first leaves his realm <laughs> yeah. and enters the sort of wider world, these kind of battles with you know, other beings and things like that. There's a lot of um, happenstance and accidental mishaps in physical comedy and some wonderful stuff with just the timing of physical comedy and also the fact that he's an elf and he's small and so he can sort of fly through the air. And, yeah, I, I thought that was very well timed out. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, you know, that is a good sort of... That's something that I think has been kind of forgotten in the world of adult animated sitcoms. Yeah. Uh, and possibly family animated sitcoms as well. You you don't get a lot of physical comedy in, like, BoJack Horseman. There was an episode of BoJack that was without dialogue that w- a lot of people found very impressive. Mm. But it was more kind of like... It played more like an art house film than a, a slapstick or physical comedy show. Like, yeah. it embraced the animation side because he's kind of in this insane underwater realm in that episode but it wasn't a particularly funny episode i think people just sort of thought it was good whereas there's a kind of old school charm to the physical the physicality of the characters in this show which to me i found very appealing well animated sitcoms are notorious now they've gone through that kind of was it chuck jones who said that it's it's basically illustrated radio when you looked mm. at things like the Flintstones and, uh, uh, and 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 shows like that, which are just and you look at them, it, this, the only cell that changes is, is the the mouth, and that's yeah. something that Family Guy do. They sit the characters down or stand the characters up. They're facing each other. It's exactly the same as the it's exactly the same as the Simpsons cartoon creator that I had as a kid on my <laughs> on my old computer where you could just drag and drop Homer coming, walking, and talking, and click on the little things, and he'll say something. And that's what they do in Family Guy, but we'll have the characters move their hand, and it'll be repeating animation, or it'll be um, the, the characters will explain something, and that they'll have a quirk or a tick or something. And it just, it's like drag-and-drop animation. Yeah. Uh, whereas this, as you rightly pointed out, there's a real love of that kind of physical comedy. It's not just about snappy one-liners or the sense that the writers are trying to live their stand-up dream through the characters uh, as as i get a sense that the um, family guy writers do um and you know there's a place for that there's a place for that stuff and it's on family guy and family guy do family guy incredibly well but um this show feels a little bit more authentic because it doesn't have that so we uh we are speaking with one of the people involved in this show we're speaking by uh, uh, lead developer um, Josh Weinstein, and uh, Josh has been his executive producer on the show as well. He's a head writer. He's one of the guys that's been intrinsic in um, in Matt Groening's career uh, as well as as well as obviously his own. Um, but he's, he's he's been there for The Simpsons, um, working with Bill Oakley, who he's worked with since school, I believe. He's also worked on shows such as. Um, 
Gravity Falls. He's worked on Strange Hill High in the UK, uh, which he developed and created as well, um, or co-created as well. Uh, he, yeah, but I think the thing, probably if you're a big Simpsons fan, he's the guy who did, uh, alongside Bill Oakley, uh, Who Shot Mr. Burns. Well, you talk about like the the era where The Simpsons kind of hit a stride. Mm-hmm. If you look at his Simpsons episodeography as mm-hmm. a writer, they're all high hitters. Oh yeah, like these these this is like this could be like a best of compilation playlist. Oh, for our you know? generation at least, absolutely. Yeah, the sex tonic one. Mm-hmm. The Pulp Fiction one, <laughs> the Australia one, the one where Marge goes to prison. Like, they're the one where Marge has a gambling problem. Yeah. The Lisa and Malibu Stacy. These are all f-ing great episodes. Yeah. He knows his stuff, you know. It, it is. It's it, it's they incredibly fantastic. I mean, every one of those that you mentioned, I could just, I'm just picturing a moment from every episode and just having a little snicker to myself. The grandpa sexual inadequacy one where it's, you, you, sir, you look like a man who has trouble pleasing his wife sexually. (laughs) (laughs) They all involve Homer getting punched in the face, though. That's what I've just realised. Quite a a lot of them. The Australia-America when Homer's jumping in and out of, uh, and he ends up getting punched in the face (laughs) as well. Well, that was always funny. Physical comedy. Yeah, again, physical comedy. We're back to it. Yeah, it's great. I remember, like, not understanding the concept of a season finale. Mm Mm-hmm. And how pissed off we all were that who shot Mr. Burns ad. Mm. And like the next episode was just a completely different episode, like a rerun. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, took, that took over everything, didn't it? That mystery. Um, uh, who shot Mr. Burns where, where I remember it being on, I remember posters that was like, select your, uh, select who you think did it. I actually genuinely remember talking to people at school about who we thought did it. Mm. And it kind of, it kind of, it did grip, uh, well, at least in my in my mind, you know, it did grip the kind of uh, zeitgeist for a while. We were all kind of thinking about it, talking about it, wondering what happened to for for the gap between the seasons because it was at the end of one season at the beginning of the other, wasn't it? I mean, what they were going for, I'm sure, was that fervor that would surround shows like Dallas and Twin mm. Peaks of. You know, every and would eventually, you know, years and years after, become shows like Lost, where people would just go get so obsessed, yeah, about what what's going on, who did this. I think it may have been Josh Weinstein actually posted this. He he put up some notes about like the concept of a who shot Jr. type Simpsons episode, and actually kind of like listing like where shows have done it and done it not very well, yeah, in the past. I remember like people being a little annoyed that it turned out to be put your fingers in your ears, people who haven't seen Who Shot Mr. Burns Part <laughs> Two. Uh, that it turns out to be Maggie, but I always thought that was kind of genius. Yeah, like because genuinely, I don't think anyone predicted that. Yeah, I, I remember feeling a little bit dissatisfied by the ending, but then I thought, oh, oh, it's a joke. Oh, yeah, that, yeah, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, realizing that you know it's not it's 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 not like world politics or anything like that it's just a a funny cartoon um yeah and it was it was great this page of notes that he posted ages and ages ago it showed that they cared about the audience yes and that's a it's a pretty i'm not even sure how necessary that is if you're you know an industry writer 
but it, it's, it's certainly it's brownie points, you know, in my estimation, that you're not just thinking about how do I how do we service this universe? How do we service these characters? How do we service the fan base? Yeah, and uh, do something that's really satisfying to them. So I would put Josh and Bill as a duo in that sense on a, on a, on a bit of a pedestal. Yes, you know? absolutely. I do think that the first decade or so of anything, people are going to be more inclined to care more about it. And they were also in very good company, I think. Some of the other writers, I, I do wonder, do they look back, oh, man, I did this 20 years ago. Like, this is such an old thing I did. But to a lot of people, I'm sure they're like really gleaming accomplishments. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, Gravity Falls as another thing this guy has to his name, like that was enormous it kind of passed me by but it was brought to my attention by a friend of mine a young lady who just was enmeshed in it like it it just captivated its audience and it's very watchable like i found it very appealing to sit through and you know watch episodes well josh talks in in the interview about his relationship with alex hirsch the creator of gravity falls um, Mm -hmm. and the way that that kind of the generation that's here now um, that are you know guys that are like our age, younger. They they were brought up on the Josh Weinstein, uh, Bill Oakley, uh, Simpsons, and so he's oh. he's indebted to them. They're indebted to him, and there's a nice kind of relationship going on um, with, uh, with 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 this kind of new generation and and with Josh. Um, but I think it, you know it kind of you know is this kind of they really like say that they really set a milestone. That's it's very it's gonna be very difficult to top the Simpsons from that particular era. So you know Matt Groening is doing well by getting Josh and Bill on board right at the very beginning of Disenchantment. I mean, if you look at um, Josh's other work with Matt Groening, the Futurama episodes that he wrote were the let's call them the recovery episodes from the um, films. Uh, the Futurama films, which were great. You know, they weren't amazing because Futurama was amazing at that point. And then they released three feature episodes. Or was it four? I can't remember. I think it was three uh, feature episodes, which were which were great, but they weren't amazing. And then when it got back to a series, um, you know, Weinstein was given control of the show, wrote some fantastic episodes um, and kind of set set it straight again. They're capable hands. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, the disenchantment episodes you saw. What do you make of them, then, Bill? Uh, Bill, <laughs> what do you make of them, uh, Trevor? Well, I, you know, like I said, the the main kind of takeaway was how refreshing it was that um, not only does it care about the story and the characters, but it cares about the role the animation plays within the kind of telling of the jokes and that sort of thing. The pilot, as is often the case seemed a little it almost not hmm, how to how to phrase it diplomatically <laughs> i could tell it it just needed a bit of time to find its feet the pilot was a little patchy compared to the subsequent episodes uh, i would say that about every pilot of every show yeah so that's not really a criticism it's just kind of the 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 burden i think of the, of any pilot is that it has to kind of go through the motions of, and this is such and such, and here is some exposition about them, and uh, this is how this person and that person's relationship works. And, you know, it's almost like you're kind of given this instruction manual for how 
the show will play out. Oh, you got to read the writer's Bible out to everyone. That's basically what it is, isn't it? The the most like odious one, and it's a show I, I enjoy in the long run, um, was the first episode of The West Wing where the characters are literally like, how, how long have you worked for me? And how many, do- you know, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And just, just what do, would you say is your job for the president? <laughs> well, but generally speaking, after a pilot, everything kind of settles into place. And yeah, episode one, everybody wears a name badge. Oftentimes, you get into a show after it's started, and you kind of work it out. Yeah, for yourself, and sometimes that's a better way to do it. But there are the number of times I remember, even when I was a kid going back to shows I liked and going back to the first few episodes, I'm like, oh my god, these stink. Mm-hmm. I remember being like really like aghast at the state of the first few Red Dwarf episodes when I got around to watching them. Because when it was on TV, the ones that were airing at the time, this would have been sort of the early 90s, everything had had fallen into place and everything was firing on all cylinders. The first few episodes, if you go back to them, everyone clearly hates each other. There's no <laughs> chemistry whatsoever. The audience kind of doesn't want to be there. Yeah. There's more coughing and clearing of throats than laughter. <laughs> Eventually, there's a cohesion that happens. Yeah. And I think that, you know, generally speaking, if you were to look at the pilot episode of this show against the pilot episode of most shows, a lot of that cohesion is already there. Mm. I just remember sort of like, it was almost kind of like I was watching it knowing that a few episodes in, I would be a little bit more invested. So that's a case for, if not binging the whole thing, binging the first couple of episodes to get that feel for it. Oh, all Netflix you know? shows, you have to do that. I was the same with BoJack. I mean, we when we had... Mm. Um, the uh, 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 designer for Bojack on on the podcast. I'd only watched the first two episodes when we were talking about it, and you were very generous with the editing scissors on that particular episode, Ben, because you cut out <laughs> the things I had to say about um, about what I thought about the show. But then I watched them more, and I was like, "Ah, oh, get it now. I understand it." And I think that's something that Netflix has changed the dynamic of animated television um, because you, the audience uh, takes the takes the show on demand whenever they want, you know, and they can watch a fair few of them uh, in, in a row. And so there's time for the story to breathe a little more. There's time to sort of get into it. And, you know, there's certain key points where you can... Uh, you know, dip in and out, which is great, you know, and, and Disenchantment's built like that. Um, the beginning of one of the episodes, uh, she's in a, she's sent to a, uh, where did nuns live? Convent. Convent, yeah. She's sent to a, a, a nun house. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and that's kind of just a, a way of getting all the sort of nun gags out of the way, which is great. But she's sent there for a reason, which goes on from the previous episode. Now, you don't necessarily have to know the reason for that, but it's still a nice episode. And there's a great thread that runs through the episodes, but you can watch them individually. But that thread is very worth investing in, I would say. It brings to mind how Futurama kind of began. Yeah. With Futurama, you really kind of had to establish what was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was no way out of that. It's still funny. It's still kind of it, it established the characters in a way that kind of showed them, you know, a, a dimensionality to them. Some characters like Bender and the Professor 
it would take a little longer. Yeah. But you got what you needed out of them for the first, you know, introduction. Yeah. You know, that initial kind of larger than life persona, respectively, that is endearing in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And then you have the, the more kind of, you know, there's more kind of a, a scope for something else when it comes to Fry and Leela, a bit more complexity. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of scope for, for that kind of thing in quite a few of the characters in the show. Uh, like you say, the, the characters there are characters that you just kind of want to know more about, and I think they've been very good at eking that out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Nice to hear some... Uh, I was about to... You, we talked about sitcoms as well, and looking at the first episodes of Red Dwarf, and for me it was Blackadder. I started oh, watching yeah. Blackadder season two and then watched season three and four. And I was like, this is great. What? There's a first season of Blackadder? What? And then, and then, and then went to watch it and I was like, oh, oh, well, well. I remember the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't think they, like, I don't think they repeat the first year very often. No. And I think that's why a lot of people come, because a few people have said that like the first year of Blackadder is a real shock. Yeah. Like, wow, this is so bad. <laughs> like, yeah. It's not even like things are a bit off. It's just dreadful. I mean, it, you know, it's weird how Brian Blessed created the whole rest of his career yeah. from that character. Yes. But aside from that, it's almost like he, he belongs in another better show. <laughs> yeah. Brian Blessed is, as much as he's a figure of fun, he's a force to be reckoned with. He really is. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of like what a man's capable of. Um, but yeah, the, the first season of Blackadder really didn't set much up, and then Ben Elton got involved in season two, and that was it. That was, it hit the nail on the head. Um, have you ever seen the pilot? Have you seen the actual the actual pilot to Blackadder? Yeah, where he's a lot more like he would eventually be. Yeah, yeah, that was that was interesting. Mm. It still wasn't great, but it was like you know, it's almost like they got to kind of hit reset. Mm. after the first okay let's try it the the first way <laughs> you know <laughs> it would just be so weird when you know you'd, you'd have blackadder who is just, just the awful voice and everything yeah. like and then baldrick would come up sidle up to him and say i've got a cunning plan <laughs> and then come up with a plan yeah that would get them out of it <laughs> no that's not the joke <laughs> you're doing it wrong <laughs> <laughs> haven't you seen episodes of the show from the future <laughs> Yeah, I've got a quite an embarrassing thing that I did when I was at, at college. We've all done embarrassing things at college. I found out about this legendary pilot episode of Blackadder. Uh, and I was on the forum trying to find out if there was like a link, if I could download it, if I could get it off of... How, how can I view this thing? And so I rang up the BBC archive and I remember the conversation. I remember parts of the conversation. And my toes are curling here. Um, I was like, hello, um, I'm interested in, in getting the first pilot episode of Blackadder. And the other guy, the guy on the other end of the phone, he knew what the game was. He, he, you know, he probably just picking up the phone all day. He's like, okay. And so do you work for the BBC? And I went, do, do I have to work for the BBC? (laughs) (laughs) And he went, yes, yes, this is the BBC archive. And I was like. If I told you I work for the BBC, would you be able to let me see it? <laughs> and he was, he was, yeah, it was excruciating. So what happened after he sent you the episode? 
<laughs> well, it was great. That's why I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have to wait 18 years for it to turn up on YouTube. <laughs> well, that was very enterprising of you. Yeah. <laughs> so are you going to stick around and watch more Disenchantment then, Ben? What do you reckon to it? Would you give it the, the Ben Mitchell seal of approval? Uh, I don't believe that's being solicited, but sure, why not? <laughs> and they'll rest easy tonight knowing that. Yeah. Super, shall we hear from Josh about uh, yeah. the show and what uh, what he gets up to? I was given seven episodes from the publicity guy who worked his socks off yesterday yeah. trying to get it all sorted for me. Uh, but oh, um, good. I could only I could only get it on my phone. So um, I've got I've watched it on a tiny screen. Uh, so my first question is, why did you make it so small? <laughs> we could only afford small small cells. That's that's the size. Unfortunately, it's an expensive show, and to do so many, we can only fit it on people's phones. Yeah. So they, but we'll provide a magnifying glass. Fantastic. <laughs> I actually put it. I actually put it on my phone. Um, to see how it looks, and I actually like watching it. It's, I mean, honestly, it's much better on a big screen because it can be pretty cinematic. We mm. hope, but I think it it actually translates to phone viewing pretty well, which I think a lot of people do these days. A lot of people will do that. You're right. It's it's a new type of watching things. I think hooking onto that Netflix thing really kind of grabs that. Um, and but the show itself, the yeah. way that it looks, it does look beautiful. Whether you're watching it on a phone or a tablet or you know or, or on a TV, because oh, uh, it's it is a it is a real push from you know what we're what we're kind of used to. I think a lot of people yeah. would, would be kind of wonder what to expect from a you know a Matt Groening show because they've seen The Simpsons and the way that that's evolved to incorporate yeah, yeah. more 3D Futurama obviously another step up Disenchantment right, and, the, and the, back, the background worlds of those two shows are similar styles yeah. even though they're just slightly different so they mesh yeah this was very intentional on our part not really to set it apart from Simpsons and Futurama but more just because it's a fantasy world we really very much wanted the backgrounds to feel kind of like both a combination of if if you're looking at a beautiful children's storybook, but also a sort of a nod to earlier Disney and and Fleischer Brothers. One of the episodes that I've seen on the uh, for the preview in the Hansel and Gretel house, the details are yeah. perhaps a little too kind of grim, but that's that kind of to me that was like oh wow they have really gone for it here, and they're not it yeah. is its own show it owns itself. Uh, in in that regard, in st- style wise, it owns itself. Um, so, if we take it back to the beginning of Disenchantment, uh, how did it all start for you? Because I know you'd work with with Matt Groening and and, and the Simpsons uh, producers. You yeah. produced the Simpsons. You produced executive produced Futurama. Uh, you've you've run both of those shoot shows as well as well as uh, countless other shows. You set up uh, Mission Hill. Uh, you set up uh, Strange Hill High over here in the UK. Um, so yeah. did you get a phone call out the blue one day from, from Matt Groening saying that he had a sketchbook full of ideas? How did it all start? It's, that's, that's very, that's very close to exactly what happened is in, in the last days of Futurama, when we were on Comedy Central, Matt and I were always like, we gotta, let's do something together. Cause we have very, very similar outlook on things and, and got along. And so after Futurama ended, and then I did Strange Hill High, and I also worked on Gravity Falls, and Gravity Falls had just finished up, 
And then I got a call from Matt to have, have lunch with him. And he he's had this idea for about eight years. And for every show he does, um, he has these sketchbooks that are just full of amazing drawings and like lists of ideas and characters. And so he showed me the sketchbook he had for this medieval show he wanted to do. And I love, I'm obsessed with like medieval legends and history. And he sort of grew up reading fantasy books like Lord of the Rings and a lot of other ones. So once he he told me an idea and showed me some of the sketches, I was like, I have, obviously I I must do this. Mm -hmm. And then we spent, we had about a year before we even hired the writing staff or got the animators going to just develop and flesh out the whole idea. So that was, that was really valuable too, to have a a huge amount of time just to flesh out this world. So, so what kind of uh, changes were there during that initial process? It was always princess being Elfo and Lucy. That's a really good question. Cause as a matter of fact, when we first started out, it was going to center around Elfo and, and Bean. It was always going to be Elfo and Bean. And then Lucy came about during that. It came, Lucy sprang from Matt's head, I think, during right when we started to develop it. Um, but then we realized that Bean is a far more interesting character to center a show around, especially in a medieval show where she's growing up in a patriarchal kingdom and she'll never be allowed to rule. And she was a much more interesting, flawed character that we thought would be much. And also it's, it's such an interesting contrast to us that as opposed to like that's either the typical Disney princess who's kind of perfect or often writers make the mistake when writing princesses to go the other way which is totally kick-ass, and we wanted to sort of have a realistic 19-year-old young woman in the center. And also because we that, like it's the first back rating show to have a female lead character, so it was just kind of interesting and challenging to us. Mm. But that came about that came about in the development process, and then we also determined that it would be the center around a trio. Because they're all supposed to be around 18, 19, 20 years old, even though Lucy's a demon. So he might be like 10,000 years old, but he's still young for demons. And they, we want, because it's also, there have been so many fantasy shows and books and movies and parodies of them that we thought if we didn't make it about something, it wouldn't be interesting. So this show, even though it has the fantastical setting, it's really a coming-of-age story about these three characters. And it's sort of like how, when you're that age, and it's based a lot on, on my friends and I, both female and male, like we drank too much. We didn't know what we wanted to do, but we knew we didn't want to do what people were telling us we were supposed to do in life. And so it's sort of based on that. Mm. It's really interesting that to see such a kind of strong... Uh, female character as well. Uh, I, I understand that the, yeah. the, the lead voice artist had a lot to do with that, as, uh, but I, I'm sure yeah. uh, maybe uh, personal experience or family experience might have had something to do with it as well. This idea how, how does a how does a, um, a, a no offense middle aged uh, uh, man <laughs> how does a, how does a fat middle aged white guy write a nineteen year old woman that's a good question that's the question i wanted to ask (laughs) 
anybody's mind. But um, it's you know before we got Abby Jacobson, we ju- we just wrote, and also luckily once we hired writing staff as well, we have a number of female writers, so we're making sure we're not just like. I hate when it's just, when it's the old white guy writing a, a female character and he brags about it and it's like well there's there's other people who helped mm. with it but um, up until we got Abby it was really just writing from our own experiences and then once you got Abby she added so much and it's really all all the actors but especially the three main actors Abby Jacobson Eric Andre. And Nat Faxon, Eric Andre plays Lucy, Nat Faxon plays Elfo. The interesting thing about those actors is they're, they're all also writers and directors and and showrunners themselves. So they have a real writer's head when it comes to these characters. So we'll give them the lines and always, you know, every scene we'll have them re- read it, and we'll record it as written twice. But then we say make the scene your own. And a lot of times they'll ad lib, and some of the most brilliant stuff in the show is actually them ad libbing. And so once we got them, then we sort of started writing towards their personalities. And Abby's a really kind of great, outspoken feminist in a really funny way. So she she helped influence that character. It's kind of like a, a feedback loop between the actors and the writers. The, uh, I think I'm, I might have noticed a particular instance, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a bit where um, Bean's hiding Elfo and Lucy in her in her top, and yeah. she looks in, and the things that Elfo's saying, I, I was nearly floored. It was it was hilarious, and 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 the, um, that seemed ad libbed. Was that is that one of these those instances? Yes, that's a really, you've got a good ear for it, because that's exactly, that scene was totally ad-lib between the three actors, and we were just blown away. And it's like, oh, that, because like we could never write something that feels like that real and, and that funny. So yeah, that came out of your heads. Fantastic. How do you flesh out the external characters and the way that those guys relate to the main characters? Because one, one of my favourite characters in it is uh, John DiMaggio's uh, King, who's yeah. just... Uh, I, 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 the things he says and the way that he says them as this kind of meticulous... As if he's just looking to have a stroke uh, and to get himself so mad at everything. How, yeah, how do you kind of flesh out the external yeah. ones? He's it's also a John DiMaggio too. John DiMaggio will turn red playing, voicing King Zog. And like sometimes I'm worried he's going to have a stroke just doing it. But he's, it's a, it's we, because combined with those actors I just talked about, we wanted to get this whole Futurama gang back together again because it was like, it was like a family. It's, we always felt that Futurama and we could have kept going to Futurama. So we wanted to get them all back. So a lot of those side characters are really written and created intentionally with the Futurama actors in mind. And we just knew that John DiMaggio would be a perfect king. Mm. And a number of the voices in the show were these voices that Futurama actors would do during Futurama records just as a joke that we all loved and never got a chance to plug into a show. So, so it was kind of fun fleshing out all the external characters because we knew we had these great actors to play them. And it's also like in The Simpsons and Futurama, like The Simpsons with Springfield or Futurama with the Planet Express crew and everybody else in the universe. It's just like, you know, 
as a, as a fan of those shows myself, you want you want to have two hundred interesting, weird, funny characters. So it's like an ever expanding universe. Yeah, I, I remember the the Futurama movie, which was based around this kind of fantasy element as well, and there's a there's, yeah. a, there's a flavor of of that to it. So it's clear that this angle has always been something that that has uh, an, an itch that the entire cast and crew have wanted to scratch for a good long while and uh, it, it seems yeah, to, yeah. to that the, 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 the they've managed to do that and it's I, I suppose um uh Futurama tackled sci-fi the idea of fantasy is has really developed in the last sort of 18 to 20 years with uh you know acceptable in mainstream cinema now it used to be a case that you know it was it was people who'd be called nerds for playing Dungeons and Dragons on the road. Yeah, exactly. Now it's kind of a bit more mainstream now and it's, it's kind of developing through. Is that, I mean, did that have a, have a, uh, a lot to do with um, getting the show off the ground? I think probably because it is like, just like it's so true. And like sci-fi similarly, like 20 years ago, it used to just be the realm of, of us nerds. And now it's mainstream and very, like you said, for fantasy, especially in the last, 10 years and I think it's just something that ring as like as weird obsessive nerds ourselves it kind of just really rings rings our bells and so it's it's something that I think we really wanted to do and it's also just like it's such a we've done sci-fi we've done present day and we make a joke about it in that trailer but it's really true it's like the obvious choice is to go back in time into history Mm. Because you're leaning on on fantasy, uh, Futurama, you could go to the um, Hall of Presidents or the Hall of, the Hall of Heads and and meet celebrities. Yeah. Uh, um, obviously, in The Simpsons, uh, there's a different celebrity passing through Springfield every week. Um, right. There's obviously there's a different different rules for for parody in in uh, in Disenchantment, surely. Yeah, and also that's a really good uh, point because in the, because we're also giving people a full series at once. You get 10 episodes at once. There's really no, there, like I think with the Simpsons, especially there's like, there's promotability to go like, Hey, this, this next week we've got so-and-so on the show. But for our show, we feel like we really don't, we actually don't want to do that. And we'd rather just have our, because we've actually discussed like, Oh, should we get a, a guest star to play a certain role. And we're like, we've got an amazing cast of these 10 most funny voice actors around. Let's give it to them. So we really, we actually don't, we're shying away from having any celebrities. Though there's one person who I really want to get, which would be Michael Palin. Mm. Because he's my, he's my, he's my idol and writing wise. And it's also, we owe a lot to Monty Python and the Holy Grail is, um, we want it was a big influence on both Matt and me when we were younger, and so if I ever got, if we could ever get one celebrity, it would be it would be him. But aside from that, I think we're we don't really have we do have we do have one other there's one other big actress who we cast because she's perfect for the role, but I can't reveal what it is because it's a big it's a big reveal at the end of our I can't even say. Right. There's, there's there's one there's one other great British actress who people will see does a voice for does a voice in, in the first season, but that's all I can say. Right. We haven't, and that's the first time I've said that's an exclusive for you. <laughs> we haven't said even said said that annoyingly vague thing yet. 
Well, thank you very much. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess it's something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I won't press you on that one, uh, but I've, I've got a few ideas rattling around in my head at the moment, and that's quite exciting. Um, yeah. so talking... And again, it's like we cast, we cast that because her voice is so perfect and she's got such good comedic timing. But anyway, people will see, yeah. Fantastic. There's there's a great cast in, in uh, uh, there's a lot of British actors in it. Um, yeah. You've got Matt Berry, who would steal any show. Uh, I know it's Noel Fielding, uh, and there's a whole host of other yeah. actors in there. Um, and it is nice to hear British uh, actors sounding British, uh, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, that uh, totally comes, uh, first of all, the Mighty Boosh is my favorite show of all time, more than The Simpsons, more than anything. It's my number one favorite show. So I'm just obsessed with all those actors. And then it so happened that Matt Berry and Rich Fulcher and I did this pilot for Fox like five or six years ago, and it never went anywhere. And it was an agonizing process. And and we just, they just kept, they kept, Taking us around, quite frankly, and and changing their minds what they wanted. But we, but Matt Berry and Rich Fulcher and I really got along quite well. And we are always like, let's let's do something else together. And it also ended up that Rich Fulcher went to my high school, and we were a couple of years apart, and kind of vaguely knew each other. So so that was the starting point. And then through really through Rich, then we were able to get Noel to sign on and then rich also recommended lucy montgomery who's awesome who's kind of like our british tress mcneil where tress mcneil is kind of our utility female actress that lucy montgomery's our utility british actress and she does so many great voices in the show as well and of course matt barry yes it's like and also matt matt grading's obsessed with toast of london as am i and yeah. so we're like we, we have to get Matt, and so he's a delight as well. But yeah, I really I like that we're mixing it up. So we have classic Futurama actors, these great American comedians, and then also hilarious British folk. Yeah, it really it really works well uh, in in terms of the the, the cast um, and some of the lines that um, Matt Berry uh, gets away with. Uh, are, yeah. uh, are fantastic. I suppose Netflix, you don't have to contend with um, uh, ratings or any of that kind of thing. Is that is that the fact? Yeah. In fact, we have to we have to set our own censorship rules because they'll really let us do whatever we want. Um, and interestingly, in the very early drafts of the show, like the very first drafts, we had characters say words like shit. And it just then it it, it kind of didn't feel right, and it didn't feel like it's like the Matt Groening way. And so we actually censored ourselves, where we're hoping that if there's stuff that's dirty or rude, it will go over kids' heads, just sort of like stuff did in The Simpsons or Futurama. But it is a slightly, I'd say it's a degree more adult than those other shows. But not 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 gratuitous in its way. It's you know it does it does it for for purpose, which is good. Yeah, you try not to be crass for yeah. crass sake. So famously, Matt Groening had a deal on The Simpsons and on Futurama that there were no notes. You weren't allowed to give right. notes. 
on on the Simpsons or or, or or changes or any of that kind of stuff. Is that was that the case with Netflix? Well, it's I think Netflix is different. I don't know. I like I know when when Matt and Jim Brooks and Sam Simon started The Simpsons, they specifically had an agreement with Fox. It's like we'll do a show for you, but you can't give notes. And because Fox was just beginning, they were like, sure. Now, I don't know. I don't think there's any specific deal of Netflix. It's just that Netflix gives its show creators such freedom that we, we knew that going in. And that's what we've experienced these whole last few years. Is they, It's a much more wonderful and nurturing experience doing a show for Netflix than I've ever had in, in 25 years of working in TV. Because they both, they encourage you to do, they buy the show and say, we bought the show because we like the idea and you go for it. And then they'll just sort of encourage us along the way. And anytime they've ever had suggestions, they've always been really well thought out and we, we've used them. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a different relationship than, than we're used to because, because it's really good. <laughs> because Fox, as, as you know, Fox, Fox couldn't give notes on Simpsons and they tried to give notes on Futurama, but they weren't allowed to, but because they weren't allowed to give notes, I think they did not. Futurama got, they were always, they canceled it and would move it around in a time slot. And I think that the executives at Fox at the time, they're different now, but at the time didn't like Futurama. So, but on Netflix, it's very different because we get the feeling that that the people there actually really love this show and and enjoy watching it. So that's that's a big change and a pleasure. Hmm. Uh, but I suppose the format as well is completely different for television. I, I don't know, you could maybe tell us a little bit about how, say, um, Futurama will be planned. So when you're planning all these episodes, whereas on Netflix, yeah. it's not a weekly thing, it's all at once or it's in batches of, of, of 10 or 20. Uh, how, how, yeah. how have you found that? Yeah, that's a big, it is a big difference both in in storytelling and the actual episodes because we can, we give people a full season of 10 at once and because it's also the nature of fantasy that we wanted, that we wanted this show to be more serialized. So as you've seen, like the, the episodes pretty much stand on their own, but there's also a deeper running story arc for the main characters that goes through. And actually, in episodes eight, nine, and ten, which you haven't seen, they, the, these story arcs reach a culmination in 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 episodes eight, nine, and ten. So we, and then, but what happens in in the, in the first season carries over into the next season. And then, at, if we get more seasons, we also know how the series will end with these characters. So then, it's just a question of plotting out the between points, but we very much wanted to do serialized storytelling as opposed to where it just resets at the end of every episode. Then the other big difference is time, the time that we have for each episode, because on a regular network like Fox, we constantly had to edit stuff out to be down to 20 minutes for Simpsons and Futurama. So we ended up a lot of times cutting our, our favorite but extraneous scenes or just cutting down to tell the story. And of Netflix, the, the limitation on time is only budgetary. So like it, it does, it costs us obviously like every minute is a lot is expensive, but if we stay within our budget, we can tell the story for as long as we want to. 
So, for example, you'll, the, the pilot is, is 35 minutes long, which is very long, but I think is good. But other episodes are like 25 and a half minutes, and they, they vary between 25 and a half minutes, 27 minutes, and then the extra long pilot. So we're really allowed to tell stories for whatever length they take to tell. And so that's kind of a luxury. Yeah. So um, you mentioned there, uh, well, The Simpsons does not have an end in sight. I think poor Al Jean has yeah. kind of, it's the question he's always asked and he always has to kind of yeah. come up with a, come up with some kind of answer. And Futurama, it was, it was clear that time was moving forward within Futurama in terms of, you know, yeah. the, the date would always be shown um, because it was set in a very definitive time period. So, uh, uh, but, no matter how many times Futurama ends, people want it to. People ask the opposite question: When's it going to start again? Um, so <laughs> yeah, people. Do. So has Disenchantment got a a definitive ending in mind? Yes, and and it's it's. I guess it's a, obviously like I would like this show to last many years, but however long it lasts, we have a, a very set ending in mind because it's also because we're telling a serialized story we don't want to frustrate people like i never saw this series lost but i gather like they didn't have a, a set ending in mind when they started out and so people got frustrated by the end and we want people to be really satisfied and in fact when we reach the end of a series and and have people will hopefully go back to the very first episode and go oh my god certain things were in there, like in the background all along. And so we've actually laid clues and mysteries from the very first episode that point to where we're going at the very end. Right, okay. And so um, do you have any kind of, if Netflix were going to be sort of uh, giving you funding and space for uh, disenchantment for years and years and years, I mean, would you expand it? Or is this something where you're going to say, nope, this is like faulty towers or, or extras or something where there's a definitive, I only want to do two seasons, three seasons, 300 episodes or something like that. Right. I think obviously I'd like it to last a number of years because we have a lot to tell, hmm. but I think that we would like to be sort of like, like I think gravity falls ended too, too soon, but I really respect Alex Hirsch who created it because he told the story he wanted to tell and then it ended and there's still a chance there could be, Gravity Falls movies and that sort of thing. But I really respect that storytelling of like, we'll tell the story and then before people get tired of it, we'll, we'll go. I just, it just depends how many years that could be. Hmm. Um, so those that are getting into uh, disenchantment, do you, do you have any kind of things for people to look out for in the, in the series? Yeah. In, in terms of, uh, favorite moments or in general like your own favorite moments or mysteries or stuff that you're particularly proud oh, of yeah I, I, what we're really proud of and we didn't know is, is both because we kind of plot out the, the general arcs of the series as a drama and then we, we put in the jokes and we weren't sure if it was going to work and I think it really works nicely so we like that and it's still really funny hmm. um I think my, my favorite thing is just how the characters and the main three really work well together. And it actually has a lot to do with the actors who are really, who've become friends from, from working on the show together. And I really like that. So I think people, 
can look forward to the seeing these characters all evolve. And not just the trio, but also, for example, Zog, King Zog, you'll see by the end of this season, you'll see a whole other side to him. And we have plans and arcs for all these characters, like, for even, like, example, Oddval, the Prime Minister, played by Maurice LaMarche, we have a very long arc for him as well. And so I look forward to hopefully people being surprised in a, where we go with characters and also being really satisfied. And I'd also say for people first to just watch the, watch the season just to enjoy it, but then you can look again and notice things in the background. And there are number there, there are things that range from symbols to other clues that point both to things that are revealed at the end of this season, this series, and then that, that point towards the very ending of the series. And there's some things even like in the very first episode that aren't, that aren't paid off in the first 10, but for example, in the second 10, there's something, this is, sounds vague, but when people watch the second 10 episodes, they'll go like, Oh my God, that's why I saw so-and-so in the very first episode. Wow. Well, you heard it here, whatever it is first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Whatever it's like Grandpa's quote, whatever it is, I hope people will like it when they discover it and find <laughs> that it has always been there, that they will like it, yes. Fantastic. So you've been taking notes from uh, Alex Hirsch then? Yeah, that's a, that's a really this is an interesting thing to talk about very briefly is that I have this theory that Alex, Alex Hirsch grew up obsessed with The Simpsons. And his favorite episode was Who Shot Mr. Burns. And also, like, actors like like Eric Andre, who's who's in his early 30s, and Abby Jacobson, they all grew up watching The Simpsons. So their base for comedy when they were kids was The Simpsons, where I grew up with, like, Scooby-Doo, which is not—which is, which is fine, but it's not the world's best, most carefully written show. So my theory is that— the young people today who are writing and animating are actually, they've evolved beyond people like me and Matt, where I think they are, they're funnier. They're even better at animation because they just started at, at a, at a higher level. So I find like, I learned a lot of stuff from working for, for Alex. And I think both he and, and people like Justin Roiland with Rick and Morty have sort of, they've, help pioneer animated storytelling where they start to tell deeper running arcs in their shows. And they also, especially gravity falls are not afraid to embrace emotion, which I really like because I think a lot of older comedy writers always feel if you have an emotional moment, you have to undercut it. And I think younger people are unironically unafraid to just embrace emotion for what it is. So, so I think I learned a lot working with all these, I was like one of the oldest guys on Gravity Falls, and I learned a lot by working with these younger people. And I also hired a couple of my favorite writers from Gravity Falls because we wanted, the writing staff is a combination of, of us old Simpsons and Futurama farts and then young people who, who we can exploit <laughs> for their enthusiasm and energy. <laughs> the uh, I noticed a few um, uh, Simpsons uh, uh, so I, I think Wes Archer's one of the directors of the early seasons, uh, uh, early episodes. Yeah, as well. yeah, he's one. Of, he's probably 
he he's probably one of the best directors around. And he actually he with with Matt Matt David Silverman and Wes Archer were the very original directors of the Simpsons from when they were in the short the short stays on the Tracy Ullman show. So Wes has been with Matt on and off from the very, very beginning. And he's just brilliant. And that's the thing I really have like rough draft. The thing about the rough draft animation house is it's a company that's run by animators. And so they, they take a particular eye towards the craft and art of animation that we really appreciate. Hmm. Fantastic. Um, so you live in LA at the moment, you write on all these shows over there um, what do you want to do when you retire? Move, move to Manchester. That's I. I hate LA so much. I love, I love doing the show and the the small circle of of animation nerds I work with here. But aside from that, LA is kind of a a horrible, desolate place, and and Manchester is just to me seems so warm and funny, even though it it's cold and rainy, and. <laughs> And so ultimately, when this show is done, I'd at least like to move part-time there and, and continue to do animation there where it's just very fulfilling. I think if, if, you, if people who live in Manchester would say that you could flip those two around. Cold, desolate place. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, and see, I'm, I'm sat in Manchester now. It's... Yeah. Yeah, well, I gladly, I will gladly change places with anybody there <laughs> to discover that for myself. Cause, and it's also because I've, I've lived in L.A. for 25 years, and it's like I loved it the first 10 years, and, and then the last 15, I've just grown sick of it. Oh, well, Manchester will welcome you anytime, I'm sure. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, have you you've, uh, you're a big fan of the Manchester kind of uh, attitude. Is there something, uh, have you uh, managed to... Add some of that to the show. Yeah, yes. Well, I think it's like I think it's also just like I feel like I fit in better with Manchester with with being sort of like having a really funny outlook on life, whereas like people in LA take themselves very seriously, and it's also sort of the always rooting for the underdog. I think it seems like it's kind of a Manchester thing, and that's something that Matt and I have always rooted for. Um, but I also say. As I mentioned in the beginning, there is, in the second batch of 10, there's a big sort of nod and tip of the hat to Manchester that comes up in an episode that people in, from Manchester will totally recognize. Right. Keep our, uh, keep our eyes peeled for that one. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so, are you working full-time now on season two? Is that the, is that the case? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we just now, like last week, we're we are getting we got the color back for episode 14 so as you know in animation it's kind of like a continual schedule and you, you must stick to the schedule so we're we're in the middle of getting color episodes back with the eye to delivering all of them i think at the end of this year so that would be like the beginning of next year i think would be the first opportunity Netflix would have to air the second batch. Fantastic. Well, uh, I shall leave you to uh, continue making uh, Disenchantment. But uh, Josh Weinstein, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. It's always a pleasure. Thank you to Josh Weinstein. 
Disenchantment is out now on Netflix to either binge or watch in moderation, as is your preference. And if you'd like to keep up to speed with Josh and his antics, he's on Twitter at Josh Strange Hill. So I think that's all we have for today. Uh, a couple of plugs from myself and Steve before we sign off. For any of you lovely listeners who might reside in the Netherlands, at the end of this month, my new film Sunscapades will be playing as part of the Butt Film Festival in Breda, one of the shorts in their over-the-top humor screening at 7 p.m. August 30th in the Chasse Cinema. It's repeated September 2nd at noon at the New Vesta Center for the Arts. Full festival info can be found at butff.nl. This is one of the first festivals to ever screen my work, nearly a decade ago, so it's lovely to be involved again. Also, as intimated earlier, Soundscapades will be playing in competition as part of Bristol's very own Encounters Short Film and Animation Festival. The programs I'm screening in are Animation 2, Happy Sad, on Wednesday, September 26th at 2pm, then the following day at 8pm for the comedy program From the Sublime to the Ridiculous. Both screenings take place at The Watershed. You can visit encounters-festival.org.uk or watershed.co.uk for more specific event info. Tickets are available now, and very reasonably priced, for what it's worth. And this Saturday, August 25th, the film will also have its Canadian premiere as part of Toronto's Lost Episode Fest, among their Not For Kids animation block, that I believe will be around 11 in the evening at the Carlton Cinema, but for more specific info, do check out lostepisodefest.com if you happen to be in Toronto. On the same day, here in the UK, Mike Mort's fantastic feature film, Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires, on which I helped with some VFX stuff, will be getting its UK premiere at Frightfest in London. There are two sold-out screenings on the 25th, although it's been suggested that day or weekend pass holders might be able to get themselves a seat. It is best to check if that is indeed the case before you buy, if that option appealed. Uh, I would suggest getting in touch or check out what else the festival has to offer at frightfest.co.uk. I know some of you already have your tickets sorted. Hopefully I'll get to see you. Should be a blast. A couple of plugs from me. Uh, our pals at Dublin Animation Film Festival have announced uh, quite an exciting internship prize. So if you're listening to this and you're a budding animator, uh, there's an internship at Bolden Media, the guys behind uh, the new Danger Mouse, among other things. Um, yes, there's a three-month paid internship um, to, at Boulder Media. So if you want to find out a little bit more about that, go on DublinAnimationFilmFestival.com and go on their blog and find the Boulder Media Internship Prize blog post uh, and you'll have all the information there. But that's a, quite a nice little leg up that I'm sure somebody uh, will make good use of uh, in industry. And while we're talking about animation festivals, uh, Manchester Animation Festival... Uh, has announced a, uh, a conference with University of Salford, uh, so the Educating Animators Conference. Uh, so there's a call for presentations, uh, which will take place on the Friday after the festival. Uh, so if you have a, a proposal or a presentation on the uh, on educating animators or training or animation in schools or, or any of this kind of stuff, you have until the 10th of September to submit your abstract. Uh, and all the details are on the Manchester Animation Festival website. You can follow 
Twitter as well, at MCR Animation. Uh, so yeah, uh, Educating Animators Conference, uh, which is on the 16th of November. You've until September 10th to uh, hand in your abstracts. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Squiggly. I'm at Ben L. Mitchell. Steve is at Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. On Instagram, at Squiggly Animation. And on Facebook, it's Squiggly Magazine. The main site, of course, is squiggly.co.uk. Until next time, happy animating.